it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the first episode of a uh, brand new project, a project that I've been kind of kicking around in my head for the better part of uh, three years now. Now, um, as pretentious as it might sound to say, people who have been following my work, but uh, <clears throat> people who have been following my work will know that I dedicated, boy, almost the entirety of 2019 to one title over at Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com, and that title was Action Comics Weekly. Now, when I did Action Comics Weekly, I, uh, I went all in. I mean, I didn't come up for air until everything was done, including the, uh, including the alternate ending that wasn't published until, you know, a decade plus after the final issue of the anthology came out. But as I was working on that, something that always tickled me, and I mean... Again, if you've been following my work, you'll know that I have a uh, particular fondness, and it's not unique to me. People of my vintage and older probably have uh, a uh, an attachment to uh, things like ephemera and things like uh, letters pages. I'm a big fan of the things that uh, you can't exactly Google and find with the quickness, you know? If you're looking for a letters page from an old comic, you may find it but you won't always find it. And uh, it's those little, you know, unexplored or un unmined, I guess, for uh, lack of a better term, uh, bits and pieces of the fandom and the industry really get under my skin and stay there. You know, they're things that I love to explore and they're things that I love to discuss. And as I was working on uh, Action Comics Daily over on the blog, one of the things that really, you know, captured me was the uh, letters pages because... I mean, it's it's weird to put ourselves in the position now, considering we're so far removed, but when Action Comics became Action Comics Weekly, that was a pretty big shift in the focus of the title, and, and we'll, we'll get into that as we go along here, but I was always so intrigued with how that was received by the fans of the day, to the point where I even... I even recorded like a like a half-assed version of what this show is eventually going to be. Basically, what I did was uh, go through letters pages and um, kind of look at them, you know, through the eyes of a fan nowadays, and just uh, I guess get a greater appreciation for how you know this. I don't want to say it was a seismic shift because I mean it was Action Comics in the '80s, and <laughs> outside of like two or three issues there, and people really don't care all that much, but. I thought it was a lot of fun, and uh, the reason I didn't actually go through with putting it out was I didn't think people wanted to hear my voice more than, you know, once a week as half of the Cosmic Treadmill, and I mean, frankly, we are three years removed, and I'm still not sure of that, but uh, but here we are, right? Now, my intention for this series, uh, I'm hoping to do an episode once a week, and this will be a uh, maybe like a timed exclusive I want this to uh, launch on the Patreon for the supporters here as some uh, bonus audio, but that isn't to say that these episodes won't make their way to the uh, main feed at uh, some point in the future, because uh, Action Comics Weekly, the entire Action Comics Daily project is, uh, I don't know, it's one of the things that I feel like I can kind of, sort of hang my hat on, in a way. Uh, I don't know that what I did has ever been done before or since in, you know, fully, you know, tearing the thing apart and looking at every single story that's in it. So I certainly want uh, this program to be as uh, widely available as possible, but also I do want to make sure that it's uh, something a little bit special for the folks over on Patreon. That said, for this very first episode, it's going to be a... Uh, 
what do we call it, day and date launch, uh, where it's going to be on the main feed and the Patreon. So, uh, you know, just to give folks an idea and maybe a taste of what this uh, little project is going to be. And uh, I guess that takes us to what this project is going to be. Now, initially, I planned on making these very, very short episodes wherein I was just going to do the letters pages here. And I was talking to a friend of mine about that, and he said, you know, you've got everything done already for Action Comics Weekly. Why don't you just repurpose all that material, turn it into an audio project, and then also do all the letters pages and the ephemera and stuff like that to kind of cap it off? And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, I don't know why I didn't think about that in the first place. So that is what we're going to do here. However, since we do have to start this project at the beginning, this first episode is going to be kind of a Frankenstein's monster in that I'm drawing from, you know, my own notes uh, from scripting on the old Cosmic Treadmill to using actual complete audio of Action Comics Weekly number 601 that I did for an episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths. And then we're going to do new stuff as well. So, I mean, there's a, there's a mishmash of stuff here for this very first episode. And, you know, if I weren't such a uh, sick-in-the-head completionist, I probably would have just started with 602, considering, uh, I mean, I've talked about 601 so many times, and I'm sure folks are tired of it. But in the interest of having everything here, and with the uh, recognition that not everybody has followed my work here, I mean, as pretentious as it sounds to suggest that people do follow the work, I have to... uh, I have to realize that this might be new to folks. So um, hopefully this might, uh, you know, invigorate some interest in the Action Comics Weekly project and maybe even the Action Comics Daily project that I ran back in 2019. Now, I think I've kind of pre-rambled myself out here. So uh, how about we hop into a little bit of a fake-ass comics history lesson here. And this is drawing from a script that I wrote for the Cosmic Treadmill a very, very long time ago. I think this was... Boy, um the summer of 2018. Uh, There's some new stuff here that I've added since, but uh, for the most part, if you've listened to that episode, if you remember that episode, you're going to hear a lot of the same stuff again. So let's hop into that right now by explaining exactly how Action Comics became Action Comics Weekly. Now, following Crisis on Infinite Earths, and after, you know, blowing through a bunch of weird inventory stories, if uh, if you're familiar with the lead-up to Crisis on Infinite Earths, or actually during Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Superman titles got very, very weird. Um, I mean, there was a an issue that was like a riff on Asterix. Uh, there was that uh, one with the famous cover of uh, Superman as a as a werewolf. Uh, it's I, I, actually I think that was a werewolf that stole his clothes. Actually, but it was weird issues, right? Now, Action Comics, the flagship here, or I guess the I guess we can argue that it was the flagship. Now that would feature the second and final chapter of Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. And that appeared in Action Comics number 583, September 1986, cover date. Then there'd be a three-month hiatus, which followed there. And this was during the handing off of the pencil from uh, Kurt Swan to John Byrne. Now, of course, we all know, you know, John Byrne basically took over the Superman books. You know, he was the driving force. Of course, you know, Marv Wolfman was there too. But Byrne was, you know, who people were kind of focusing on here. So he took over the Superman line, we'll say, for argument's sake. And Action Comics would become the de facto Superman team-up book. Now, this would take the place of uh, DC Comics Presents, which was, you know, canceled not all that long before. Now, during this run, Superman would team up with some heavy and uh, not-so-heavy hitters in the post-crisis DC universe. 
some of those team-ups included, uh, you know, famously the new Teen Titans. That was the first issue of the team-up format. Uh, the Green Lantern Corps, Phantom Stranger, Demon, the New Gods, Hawkman, and uh, uh, one that folks will probably remember is that two-parter with uh, Superman and Big Barda doing something, right? Now, Byrne would take Action Comics up to its landmark 600th issue, which had a May 1988 cover date. But after that, well, some change was in the air. So it becomes Action Comics Weekly. But before we get there, let's briefly discuss the would-be weekly title, which would feature the characters that DC had recently acquired from Charlton. Now, in 1983, Charlton Comics was not in the best of health. And so Paul Levitz was able to acquire their Action Heroes characters for $5,000 apiece. And he did this as a gift for Dick Giordano. But here's the question. What do you do with all these newly procured properties? Well, Giordano's original plan was to begin reprinting their old adventures in order to uh, introduce them to the DC Comics audience before spinning them out into new stories and new series. And uh, DC's marketing department put the kibosh on that pretty quick, which is probably, looking back, a good thing, considering that at the time, Crisis on Infinite Earths was, you know, ever looming on the horizon. Around 1984, the direct market was becoming a viable option for distribution, and uh, Giordano decided that perhaps the best way of using the Charlton Action Heroes would to be in a more experimental weekly anthology format. Now, this was set to be Comics Cavalcade Weekly, or at least initially, it was going to be Blockbuster Weekly. Now, the Action Heroes would be featured in what was described as, quote, extended Sunday newspaper comic strips. DC's own syndicated newspaper strip, The World's Greatest Superheroes from 1978, would also be included to uh, better, you know, tie it in with the DC line. And this was a pretty serious pitch and very nearly came to be. And, uh, I mean, folks who are listening will probably know that there is even an unpublished cover to this issue drawn by Dave Gibbons. And uh, worth noting that Dave Gibbons was working on another project around the same time where, you know, they weren't allowed to use those Charlton characters. And, uh, well, that's a project you may have heard of. Now, we even have some creators on board, including uh, Pete Morisi, who was on board to contribute a Peter Cannon dot 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 Thunderbolt strip. Frank McLaughlin was uh, there to contribute a Judo Master strip. Steve Englehart was to update the Blue Beetle with art by David Ross and Alex Nino. Later, that shifted over to Chaz Twrog. Um, and this was going to actually introduce us to Ted Cord's wife, who didn't know that he was the Blue Beetle. Uh, Keith Giffen would write and draw Peacemaker with Robin Lauren Fleming on scripts. Mike W. Barr would write The Question with art by Stan Wach. Giordano himself would work on the Sarge Steel strip with artist Trevor Von Eden. And finally, Captain Adam would get the creative team of Paul Kupperberg and Dennis Cohen. Uh, originally, Paul Chadwick was going to provide art for this one. Stories were actually outlined several weeks out, and uh, Charlton was going to be established as being on Earth-5 in the multiverse. Of course, we now recognize that the Charlton Earth is Earth-4. But then, crisis happened. And that changed everything. Suddenly, DC's editorial had some different ideas for the, you know, semi-recently procured Charlton characters, so... The weekly anthology taking place on another Earth was not an option anymore. However, the idea of a weekly anthology series, uh, well, that stuck around in the back of somebody's mind here, and that, uh, that somebody was DC Comics editor Mike Gold. And we read the following from an issue of Back Issue magazine. This is issue 98, August 2017 cover date. After the success of the weekly Millennium crossover miniseries, uh, Gold was instrumental in convincing the powers that be that it was time to explore the idea of a weekly comic. Over time, the idea metamorphosed into Action Comics Weekly. 
The idea itself was an experiment, according to supervising editor Gold, but it could have had a different title. Now, Gold says originally it was supposed to be adventure comics and be ad-free. He continues to say Action was having deadline trouble, so the publisher thought it best to switch over to ACW. I still wish we went with adventure because Action Comics carried certain expectations and had a certain weight. Now, it might seem weird, but uh, the, the part of that statement that sticks out most to me is the uh, allegation that a John Byrne book was uh, having deadline troubles. <laughs> it's just not something you hear. Though, I mean, in fairness, Byrne had a ton on his plate here, but uh, I, th- I think he would uh, probably argue that that maybe not be the case. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, Bob Greenberger, another editor, would do research on the British weeklies like 2000 AD in order to analyze the flow of the storytelling to see if it's something that, uh, you know, could work here. And one of the less talked about ideas that Bob and Mike decided to include in Action Comics Weekly was having the readers write in to rank the features. And again, if you're familiar with my work, you'll know that I tried in vain to do the very same thing on the blog. I put up polls every week to see what the readers of current year thought of these books, and, uh... Well, it didn't exactly set the world on fire, but uh, hey, you know what? Maybe uh, maybe I've got a second chance with this uh, appendix project here. And oh, by the way, I'm calling this the Action Comics Daily Appendix. I don't know if I said that yet, which makes me a uh, fairly horrible host, doesn't it? Anyway, another thing that was important to Mike Gold, and it's another thing that really isn't talked about much, but ACW is one of the earliest mainstream titles to be published and distributed without the Comics Code Authority seal. And we're going to see right out of the gate here with the very first story that appears in Action Comics Weekly. Um, they are kind of pushing the envelope insofar as uh, violence and stuff like that. The, some of the stories here will be a little bit more mature-ish. I mean, looking at it now, it's kind of quaint because now, I mean, <laughs> there really is no such thing as a uh, child-friendly mainstream superhero book. Uh, at least, you know, relatively speaking. If there are any books, they are few and far between. Now, as mentioned, I am a huge fan of ephemera. I feel it lends quite a bit of a gestalty goodness to a project such as this. So I have been collecting as much as I can, uh, about as much as I can, that relates to Action Comics Weekly. And, I mean, this is me pulling, you know, old fan mags that might have, like, one sentence about it. You know, I I just want it, I need it, (laughs) I have to have it. And uh, we'll be referring to a lot of these as we go through here. Unfortunately, for the start, it's mostly promotional. So it's going to be very, very repetitive, so I'm not going to read everything here word for word because, I mean, how many times do you need to hear who's going to be on each feature, what features are going to be rotated out? I mean, we'll mention it the one time. We won't go into it every time. But uh, now from Amazing Heroes, issue 133, which had a January 15th, 1988 cover date here, we learn that Superman's getting a demotion. Here it says, beginning with issue 601, Superman is demoted to a two-page feature in Action Comics. Yes, you read that correctly. Two pages per issue. But that's eight pages per month as the title becomes Action Comics Weekly. So that's an early mention, and I will be combing uh, my you know fan mag collections for more. Uh, we will be referring to them here and again when, as we go through, if, uh, if it's pertinent, of course. And speaking of pertinent, if you've looked at the, uh, the cover art for this episode here, you'll have seen the iconic, well, semi-iconic, iconic to me anyway, because I... Uh, yeah, I'm, I've got tunnel vision. Uh, Action Comics Weekly 601, the cover there, to me, is fairly iconic, probably because I've looked at it um, half a million times. But also, on that cover art, there is a red-covered book here that says Action Comics Weekly Preview. Well, what in the hell is that? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. It's actually a uh, black and white photostatted preview edition of Action Comics Weekly number 601 that DC Comics sent out to retailers and prolific letter hacks as kind of a taste test, uh, you know, for retailers to be a little bit uh, more educated on what the title is going to be in case they have any customers curious as to why Action Comics now costs twice as much <laughs> as it did uh, a couple of months before. And also for uh, the prolific letter hacks to maybe inspire them to write in some letters. This is going to be a weekly book, right? So... If they want to start having a letters page with some, you know, correspondence, well, they got to start early. They got to get those uh, those copies out there so they can start printing letters with the quickness. You don't have a few months lead-up time here. This is just weeks. So um, I didn't know this was a thing until reading a letters page, actually. Uh, in a little blurb, uh, Mr. Gold says, uh, As I type these words, Action Comics Weekly number 601 is three weeks away from your hands. But, as is our custom, we sent a number of Lucky DC Letter Column contributors an advanced black-and-white preview edition, and we'll be featuring their comments in this column. Now, when I read this for the first time, um, I got that that sick completionist pit in my stomach, you know, where you realize that you, you really want something, and you also understand how, how you probably won't ever get it, you know, because this is... Definitely not something I'd find in a bin somewhere. I've never seen, like, a uh, an advanced preview of, really, anything. You know, outside of, like, the ash can previews that you'd see at Comic-Con or something, I've never seen anything quite like this, a black-and-white photostat copy. It's very, very bizarre. And, you know, as a uh, as an Action Comics weekly ephemerologist, <laughs> um, I felt like this was something I had to own. I had to track this thing down. Uh you know, a few weeks into the project, I was tipped off that um, that DC had sent out Action Comics Weekly, like, dioramas, like little displays for uh, comic shops that had little tokens depicting the features, like, hanging from the Action Comics Weekly, you know, banner. And it just looked super, super cool. And it turned out that uh, my buddy Dave actually found it online and sent it to me. And I've got it framed in a uh, shadow box right now. It's just, it's one of the coolest things that I own. And so I felt like I really needed to have this, too. And so uh, the hunt was on. And I looked, and I, I talked to people at the local shops. And, of course, nobody had any idea what I was talking about. Because if, I, if you're not talking about, uh, uh, you know, a Marvel movie or The Walking Dead, more often than not, uh, the folks at the comic store will just look at you as though you have three heads if you ask about something as niche as this. But, you know, after hunting for a little bit, I actually came across a copy on, of all places, Amazon. Amazon.com. And, uh, like I said, it's not anything I'd ever seen before, so uh, it was a risky buy. <laughs> it was a risky purchase. I, I think it was 15 or $20. And I figure, okay, you know, yeah, 15 20 bucks that's worth it <laughs> for, for something this strange and something this off the beaten path. And uh, sure enough, you know, a week, week and a half later... I got that photostatted preview copy. Now, as far as the stories included within, it's uh, it's all the same stuff, minus, you know, some of the balloons are in different places. Um, you, you can see notes, and I mean, that's really, really cool stuff, but uh, in as far as a story, all the stories are more or less the same as what would appear in the final product. But uh, for me, as a fake-ass comics historian and ephemerologist, um, the coolest parts were the letters included at the end of the preview issue here. And I want to read those to you now. I mean, they don't really give much information, but I mean, these are missives that you're not going to find everywhere. I mean, 
You can Google them now since I put them online, but uh, before that you really couldn't find them. Uh, so we're going to start with a letter from Bob Wayne, the retail promotions manager, dated February 1st, 1988. And he says, Dear retailer, welcome to the preview copy of Action Comics Weekly number 601, the first weekly issue of that DC flagship title, the title that launched Superman and our entire industry 50 years ago. We have numerous promotional plans for Action Comics Weekly in the works, some of which you may have already read about in coming comics. Well, that sounded grosser than I thought. Um, we want your customers to know that Action Comics Weekly is on its way starting in April, each and every week. Read the enclosed letter from senior editor Mike Gold for more background on Action Comics Weekly, and then read this preview copy of the first weekly issue, Action Comics Weekly number 601. I have to note here, Action Comics Weekly is always in like capital letters here, so... There's a lot of capital letters in this missive. Um, now, he wraps up with Action Comics Weekly number 601, retails for $1.50, and is in the standard format and ships April 5th. Contact your DC Comics distributor today if you need to order additional copies of Action Comics Weekly. Now, of course, my main takeaway from that is that uh, there's some Action Comics Weekly material in something called Coming Comics, which... I mean, we, we don't need to really dwell on the title of that magazine, but uh, that's a magazine I need, to, uh, I need to track down, though make sure I have my uh, Google safe search on when I, when I look for it, I suppose. Uh, next, we have the enclosed letter from Mike Gold here, the senior editor, also dated February 1st, 1988. Now, this one's a little bit longer. He says, Dear Retailer, I want to present you with some of the most interesting names in comics. Names like Mike Barron, John Beatty, Terry Beatty, Black Canary, Black Hawk, Rick Burchett, or Burchett, I don't think I've ever said that word out loud, Max Collins, Dead Man, Randy DeBurke, Tony DiZaniga, Green Lantern, Mike Grell, Dan Jurgens, Gil Kane, Pablo Marcos, Nightwing, John Nyberg, Jim Owsley, Martin Pascal, or Pasco, uh, Chuck Patton, Secret Six, Dan Spiegel, Roger Stern, Superman, Kurt Swan, Wild Dog, Sar Sharon Wright, and Marv Wolfman. Not to mention cover artists like Kyle Baker, Brian Boland, Kerry Gamble, Dave Gibbons, Klaus Janssen, Mike Kaluta, the Kubert Brothers, Steve Lytle, Mike McNola, Alex Nino, George Perez, and Paul Smith. And now you'll understand why we're not going to be reading everything that Mike Gold says in the lead-up to this, because it's a lot of that. But uh, he continues, In other words, I'd like to present you to the characters and creators of Action Comics Weekly. Of course, ACW is not a new publication, a point reflected by the continued numbering from Action Comics Monthly. In fact, Action Comics Weekly returns DC's flagship title to its roots as an anthology comic. Hopefully not as boring as the original Action Comics monthly anthology, huh? There's always been a great deal of love for the superhero anthology comic, but this passion rarely translates into sales significant enough for continued publication. Whereas readers enjoy the variety, today's reader requires more plot and character development than most creators can squeeze into eight pages each month. Note the key words there, eight pages each month. Action Comics Weekly offers eight pages each week, and, is min and with minimal recapping, our stories will proceed at a breakneck speed. Well, uh, we might need a citation on that one. Because each creative team controls the number of issues each story will run, stories are not squeezed into 22 to 27 page increments. If a story requires six chapters or 16, that's what it'll get. Each issue of Action Comics Weekly will contain Superman and Green Lantern and four other series. These series are selected from a rotation of six. Dead Man, Wild Dog, Black Hawk, The Secret Six, Black Canary, and Nightwing. From time to time, we will break our rotation with a one- or two-part Phantom Stranger story or a special four-part showcase story, presenting an all-new preview of an upcoming DC series or miniseries. 
In this way, we'll minimize launching more than one brand new storyline in any one issue of ACW, keeping something new going on all the time and, and maintaining the highest levels of reader interest. Significant things will happen in ACW. For example, a member of the old Green Lantern Corps will die. Black Canary will destroy her new costume. Green Lantern will reunite with Green Arrow. Nightwing will team up with Speedy, and the Man of Steel will become a god. Readers never will quite know what to expect from Action Comics Weekly, but they won't dare miss it. Each week, every week. We have a great deal of faith in the concept of a weekly anthology title. So much faith that we're putting the prestige of our flagship title behind it. At 48 pages for $1.50, with the above-name lineup of creators and characters, Action Comics Weekly is one hell of a comics title. Enjoy the 601st issue of Action, our first weekly issue. Now, with all that said, I suppose it's uh, probably high time to actually get to the issue in question, isn't it? Um, now, if you've never read Action Comics Weekly number 601, um, and you do want to follow along... There are posts at Chris's on Infinite Earths so that I will link in the show notes here. I'll link both the uh, the images from the preview edition as well as uh, issue 601, so you can you can take a look at both and see how they're a little bit different. You can see how some of the uh, some of the artists involved here really really pop in the black and white art. It's really something quite special and not something you're going to see you know everywhere. So I will link those, but uh, for now. I'm going to send it to my correspondent, me, from a couple years ago, <laughs> in Chris's On Infinite Earths, episode 25, for the synopsis of Action Comics Weekly, number 601. Action Comics Weekly, number 601. From uh, Mike's Amazing World at DCIndexes.com gives this as an April 5th, 1988 release. We've got six stories. Green Lantern in dot dot dot, and The Pain Shall Leave My Heart. Wild Dog in Moral Stand Chapter 1, colon, Point of Order. The Secret Six in Listening to the Mockingbird. Superman in Faster Than a Speeding Bullet. Dead Man in The Section Chief. And Blackhawk in Another Fine War. We have a whole lot of creators here. Written by Jim Owsley, Max Collins, Martin Pascal, Pasco, Roger Stern, Mike Barron, and Mike Grell. Pencils, Gil Kane, Terry Beatty. Dan Spiegel, Kurt Swan, Dan Jurgens, and Rick Burchett. Inks, John Nyberg, John Beatty, Tony DiZaniga, and Pablo Marcos. Letters, Albert de Guzman, Gaspar, Carrie Spiegel, Bill Oakley, and Steve Haney. Colors, Anthony Tolan, Michelle Wolfman, Carl Gafford, Tom Ziuko, and Liz Barube. Editors, Denny O'Neill, Mike Gold, Dick Giordano, Mike Carlin, and Barbara Randall. This one had a cover price of $1.50. Now, if you need to know, or you want to know, what Action Comics Weekly is, where it came from, why it existed, uh, Reggie and I did do a five-part series on Hal Jordan's Action Comics, where we went through all of the Green Lantern uh, features throughout the entire run. And at the beginning of that, uh, we spent a quite a quite a bit of time breaking down exactly what made this viable and why DC actually was able to approach a weekly anthology book at this uh, at this point in time. And I was actually going to include some of that as a Cosmic Treadmill classic, but it was like 20 minutes long, and this, uh, this episode's going to be long enough as it is. <laughs> I thought it would just be uh, fluffing it a bit too much to put another 20-minute uh, soundbite in there. So I will link to those episodes. I think uh, those were all very, very fun episodes. Uh, very proud of those episodes, so... 
definitely uh, check those out if you do have the time and or interest. Uh, let's open with Green Lantern here. Now, we open with the Star Sapphire having a space battle with a uh, rather goofy-looking construct of Hal Jordan. She laments the fact that she had once loved him, but now only hate remains. You see, she blames him for the fact that her people, the Star Sapphires, the Zamorans, have vanished, and she's going to eventually want to get her pound of flesh out of him. Meanwhile, on Earth, Hal and his... uh, Barely legal underage girlfriend Aresia are couching it at John and Katma's place. And it looks like this uh, living arrangement might be a little bit too close for comfort for the Stewarts. Hal complains that he's broke. You know, what else is new? And so John suggests he... Get this. He, he suggests that Hal go and rob a South African diamond mine. Uh, not a joke here. He actually suggests he go steal diamonds from a mine. Uh, at the same time, Katma is reaming out Aresia for hogging the shower, so yeah, things are a little too close for comfort. John ensures Hal that the African mine is closed down, so uh, if he were to go and steal some diamonds, it would more be a case of finders keepers instead of actually, you know, thieving. And so, our man is Africa bound. We jump ahead one page, and he's there picking up diamonds and getting shot at. He uses his ring to disarm the soldiers, and he asks himself why he doesn't feel all that bad about breaking the law. Back in the city, Star Sapphire pays the steward apartment a visit and kills Cat Matui. They're really not messing around here. Uh, this is a uh, a brutal. Uh, no, it's not not so much a brutal death scene, but the 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 actual post death scene is is kind of gory. Uh, we wrap up this chapter with Hal returning to the pad only to find Jon Stewart hunched over the body of his now-dead wife. Naturally, Jon blames Hal, probably because Star Sapphire said that uh, this was a message for Hal, so who else is he going to blame it on? And uh, we're going to take the uh, little analysis of these uh, chapters as they come here, instead of me trying to remember (laughs) at the very end here. Uh, Now, this chapter really uh, hits the ground running for Action Comics Weekly here. Uh, It's established here right out the gate that we are playing for keeps, regardless of all the weird editorial stuff that happens much later on. Uh, The Green Lantern feature is the headliner, you know, of the uh, first two-thirds of this Action Comics Weekly run. And straight away, we can see that this is going to be a very important chapter for Hal Jordan lore, or at least it was intended to be at the time. Now, in the lead-up to this, uh, and this is something that Reggie and I did talk about at length during those those Green Lantern Action Comics Weekly episodes, uh, there was a trial of Sinestro in the Green Lantern core title, which is the precursor to this. Um, and, and during this, uh, the you know the core is wiped out. The Star Sapphires are gone. It it, it really clears up why uh, Star Sapphire is in a not so good mood and why she acted out the way she did. It's a it's a pretty good read up until that last issue. Now, all told, this is a chapter that would make fans of Green Lantern stand up and take notice. Katma's death is one that would actually stick for a very long time. This is actually one of the very, very few bits of Lantern-flavored Action Comics Weekly legacy that would make its way through this run. I think people generally write this off as, uh, you know, being like a shock ending just for the sake of being a shock ending, and they're not wrong. Um, They're not wrong. This is uh, very much a statement, I think, a statement 
uh, cliffhanger to let us know that these stories are going to matter in the grand scheme of things. Uh, that said, I, I, I enjoy it. I enjoyed the fact that that this was made. It was made clear right out the gate that this was going to be the continuation of Hal Jordan's stories and not just some sort of thing on the side. You know, they were taking Action Comics Weekly seriously and uh, earnestly, which uh, you know. I, um, as a guy who is a fan of Everything Matters, you know, the, that really, uh, it scratches me where I itch. So, not a bad start for Action Comics Weekly. But next, we jump into the Wild Dog feature. And here we open during a Davenport City Council meeting where a member of the Committee for Social Change has taken over the proceedings. He is demanding that Wild Dog be handed over to him for his crimes against their organization. Otherwise, he's going to start putting holes in members of the board. The Quad Cities police forces already has the place surrounded. Back inside, the CSC spokesman continues to rant, and he gives Wild Dog 30 minutes to appear. Otherwise, innocent blood is going to be on his hands. Reporter Susan King, who is just a wonderfully weird character, uh, she's on hand to cover the meeting, and she's not quite sure how they're going to get out of this one. Well, just so happens that at that very moment, a maintenance man enters City Hall. After bumping into a civil servant, he ducks away into a closet where we learn that he is, in fact, Wild Dog. Meanwhile, the police put their heads together uh, over how to handle this present crisis. Lieutenant Flint suggests that maybe they just dress a dude up like Wild Dog. After all, his costume is pretty easy to replicate. And, uh, yeah, Andy ain't wrong, is he? Point is, however, moot, because Wild Dog's already locked and loaded, and he approaches the chambers and proceeds to blow the CSC goons away. If you've never read a Wild Dog story before, I really recommend you do, because this is... It's a little shocking in how violent it is, especially for the time, and especially coming from uh, D.C. Now we wrap up this chapter with Quad City's finest rushing into the chambers to discover the wake of Wild Dog's latest endeavor. However, the man himself is nowhere to be found. Yeah, this one's a lot of fun. I, I have I always have a lot of fun with Wild Dog, um, and, and I've I've mentioned before on the uh, on the blog and maybe on the show I don't recall, but uh, I think that Wild Dog gets dismissed too uh, too easy as a as a funny haha type of character, like like the Mort of the Month and Wizard sort of deal. Like oh, this guy's a joke. He's he's stupid but he's so he's so stupid that he's awesome sort of thing that, that thing kind of that kind of humor that I just don't dig but uh you know this is it's a lot of fun and actually coming after the the green lantern chapter it serves as a little bit of a palate cleanser you know i think the uh i think the the, the jordan feature was a uh, very very severe where this one's more even though it's a hail of bullets. It's it's kind of lighthearted in a way. It's more popcorn than drama, and I really feel like the anthology format might be the perfect format for Wild Dog. Uh, as much as I loved the miniseries, unironically, I thought it was very good. I again, you know, he's usually written off as a funny haha or so bad it's good sort of a thing, but I, I think it was a lot of fun. It was uh, definitely action movie popcorn type of deal. Uh, which might sound weird from coming from someone who doesn't watch movies to s- refer to it as such, but uh, I, you know, I think if you were trying to do a full-length series with Wild Dog, it would run its course pretty quickly. Whereas, 
If you're doing it in seven to eight page chunks, like we are here, I think it works a lot better. As far as the story is concerned, we are introduced here to the threat of the so-called Committee for Social Change, and uh, they are very much at odds with our lead character. We get to see the thorn in our thorn in the side reporter, Susan King. She gets some panel time, which is always welcome, if you ask me. We also get the Quad Cities PD. We're basically laying a foundation here, and uh, I think that's a really Really key way to do an introductory chapter Because I mean this is Action Comics Not a Wild Dog miniseries So you gotta assume that people reading this Or picking it up out of habit Or picking it up out of curiosity May not know a whole lot about Wild Dog So this really does a good job Of getting everybody up up to speed Without beating you over the head With everything that went on beforehand I mean you know you know that Jack, or I don't even know if they mention his name is Jack in this, but you know who Wild Dog is, you know what he is, and you see just how uh, how ultra-violent he can be to, uh, you know, in the name of uh, justice. It's, uh, again, a really good palate cleanser after the very heavy Green Lantern chapter, um, and, and I quite enjoyed it. Now, let's move to something that I don't recall enjoying as, quite as much, and that is... The Secret Six feature. This series and story opens in Orsonville, where there's quite the heavy acid rainstorm going on. It's literally melting the flesh off of all the citizens. And, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, acid rain is one of those things that I thought was going to impact my life in, in a very profound way. You know, like when you're a kid and you see... And you think about things like quicksand, and you think that quicksand is going to be something you're going to have to dodge your entire life. Your quicksand and acid rain were about level <laughs> in my uh, in my experience. I always thought that I would probably meet my end via one or the other. Uh, anywho, we get a shot of the technodyne plant, which may or may not have anything to do with anything, but almost certainly does. From here, we shift scenes to this odd woodland mansion called the Enchanted Forest, where a fellow who looks a lot like Bert Convy tells all the patrons that they're going to be closed the following night in order to hold a private party. After making the announcement, he follows up with a couple of fellas, uh, including original Secret Six member Carlo Dorenzi, regarding some RSVPs. And so we're about to meet some of the invitees. We start with Mr. King Savage, who is another original member of the Secret Six. They're, they're all going to be the members of the original Secret Six, by the way, so no surprises there. Next, we meet Lily de Nuave, or Neve. She's, an, of course, a former member and an aged French film star. Next up is Crimson Dawn, and uh, I'm not talking about that weird red mock that Psylocke had show up over her eye in the late 90s. This is just another Secret Six veteran. Uh, her real name is Kit Dawn Langman, and she is a model. Then we meet Tiger Force. He's a beat-up old boxer who appears to have trouble even signing his name, though he does tell a fan that he's going to write a book one of these days. We jump off to August Durant, a former physicist, now an old man reliant on pills to stay alive. He quarrels with uh, an older woman, maybe his wife, I don't know, before getting into a car. Back at the Enchanted Castle, Bert Convy, looking dude, who's actually a fella named Raphael. He's pleased to hear that the gang's all RSVP'd and on their way. And uh, hopefully he thinks that this might draw the mysterious Mockingbird out of the shadows as well. He actually draws a picture that 
If you hold it one way, it looks like a bunny. If you hold it another way, it kind of looks like a bird. I don't know. I'm sure it's supposed to be a bird, considering he did talk about Mockingbird. Now, we shift scenes to San Francisco, where a man is arriving for a job interview. It's 10 o'clock at night, so he's uh, more than a bit suspicious. He's also blind. Upon arrival, he meets five other people, including a woman who appears to be in a hockey mask. Nobody mentions that it's weird that she's wearing a hockey mask, but what are you going to do? It's quickly established here that each of these folks has a disability. The one we followed in is blind. Another guy is deaf. There's one in a wheelchair, and uh, as mentioned, one's wearing a hockey mask. They were all called here by someone calling themselves Mr. Bird. Hmm. And none of them seem to be all that pleased to be there. Uh, In fact, a fight breaks out between them straight away. They are then interrupted by a video monitor, and it's Mockingbird looking a lot like Cobra Commander. He offers them each a new life they've never dreamed possible, so long as they agree to be his all-new Secret Six. We wrap up this chapter with a mention of an entire city having been wiped out. Uh, We're going to assume that that has something to do with that acid rain. Now, it's funny. If uh, you're following along on the blog, uh, you'll know that uh, we're just about done with the Secret Six feature. And so much of what I'm reading here, it's been, I haven't revisited uh, this first chapter since doing it uh, back in February. Now, with all that I do know and all that we know reading through most of this, uh, this feature, so much of this makes sense. You know, uh, so many of these questions we have here are answered, which is cool and rewarding and satisfying. But if I were to, you know, if I were just to go back to February, the first time I experienced this, and, and I've tried reading this before. I've tried reading the entirety of Action Comics Weekly before. I've just never been able to keep up with it because so many of the stories were a drag, you know? And this was one of them because I didn't know anything about these characters. Uh, you got to look at the Secret Six as a property. This is pre Gail Simone. This is pre, you know, uh, sort of the odd take on the Suicide Squad, you know, sort of a situation that the Secret Six had become uh, pre Flashpoint. This is a totally different thing. And uh, this isn't a bad story by any means, but, uh, you know, I was coming in cold. I'm assuming a lot of people were coming in cold here. I, I don't know that you'd have any idea what any of this meant. Uh, If you look, I I did a bit of research here, and outside of an appearance in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12, March 1986 cover, the Secret Six hadn't been seen since Secret Six number 7, which had a cover date of April-May 1969. So it means almost 20 years ago, and they only had seven appearances. So this is a very obscure property, or it was a very obscure property. I mean, even... Looking stuff up with the DC Wikia at my side was a bit uh, was a bit daunting, and you know I, I don't think we had a DC Wikia back in 1988, so I don't know how easy this would have been to uh, to really latch onto and have any kind of investment in. Um, the story itself was a little tough to follow. Uh, the panel layout is a little bit all over the place, and you know. You just you just don't know who these people are, and you don't know why they're important. Like, if, if I see the name August Durant, and I can't Google or August Durant, I don't have any idea who I'm looking at, you know? 
again, if we're if we're reading this with the hindsight that we have built over the past several months, then sure, these people are all kind of old hat to us now, and we know the direction the story is going, and we know that Technodyne will loom large the entire time through. So it's it, you know it's kind of uh, it rewards you for being a loyal reader, but at the same time. It's like you gotta be so tall to ride the ride, you know? And uh, I think a lot of us came in a little short because, I mean, who are these people, right? Now, I do like the idea of the new Secret Six being comprised of folks with disabilities because, and this spoils a little bit further on, Mockingbird will give them gifts that kind of, uh, that undo their disabilities. So, the fellow who's blind will be getting... You know, a, a face mask that allows him to see. Uh, a guy who has bad arthritis in his hands will get, you know, some sort of a mantle that'll help him work with his hands again. Fellet in a wheelchair is going to get cybernetics put onto his legs so he can walk again. The deaf guy is going to be able to hear again. And they're all going to be beholden to Mockingbird. So they all have to act in Mockingbird's best interest, or they go back to being disabled. They go back to their, you know, their new normal or their. Old normal, I guess. So it's a very cool uh, uh, dynamic uh, that this uh, team is is going to have to act in Mockingbird's best interest, whether it's on the level or not, and whether they're comfortable or not, just in order to keep their uh, their abilities, which I think that's pretty cool. Uh, not that cool. Let's hop into the next story, which is our Superman feature. And this is, uh, this is one I've been taking a task for time and again, uh, for just not getting it. Uh, this is a two-page feature written in the spirit of the Sunday newspaper strip, which I have a hard time looking at as its own thing. I- I'm comparing it to the other features in the book, which is kind of like, you know, comparing apples to elephants, you know? They're two different animals, they're two different beasts, and uh, or two different things altogether. But I hold it to the same standard since it's here and since I've dedicated an entire day to it, uh, which is my fault. You know, it's uh, it's my own projection. It's not uh, any kind of weakness with the story, even though the story does tend to be a bit weak in my opinion. Let's look at this one here. It's two pages, and we open with Clark Kent stood atop the Daily Planet building enjoying both the view and a beverage. Among the voices he to- he tunes into, he hears a man crying out for help. Clark soups up and heads down to see what's up. And that's it. That's the entire story. Uh, (laughs) And I've mentioned that I I have uh, weird feelings and pangs of guilt. And uh, this this day, (laughs) though the Superman day, I feel so guilty for not providing uh, enough for the readers of uh, ChrisSunInfiniteEarths.com. I feel like I'm really just taking a day off and... Instead of just enjoying it for what it is, I feel really bad about it. And I try to make it more than it is, which really only leads to me talking myself into circles and complaining an awful lot that this story isn't exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, Suffice it to say, I don't get it. I don't like it. It's not my thing. I understand why people would like it. It's great to see Kurt Swan draw a uh, post-crisis Superman, uh, you know. You don't get a whole lot to sink your teeth into here Uh, You know, every story's got to start somewhere And I guess this is where this story starts 
uh, you know, not to not to put the cart ahead of the horse here, but uh, this has been a slog ever since. I mean, we're up to issue 628 on the blog right now, so we've done 28 of these two-page stories, and I think we're later on the same day. You know, <laughs> it really just hasn't hasn't moved. Um, just not my thing. Not my thing. Uh, I'm going to try to present it as even-handedly as possible and leave uh, whatever kind of preconceptions I have out of it going forward because I have really let myself go loose on this thing. But, uh, eh, it is what it is. Speaking of which, Dead Man. Now, we open with Dead Man stood atop a satellite somewhere between the Earth and the Moon. His mission at present is to track down this 278 criminals who had escaped from Nanda Parbat. And I'm already bored. Uh, <laughs> this is like reading an Iron Fist story and seeing mention of Kun Lun. That's just so dull. Anyhow. He heads toward Earth, and he intercepts an airplane in the middle of a guns-for-drugs operation. The pilot and co-pilot are speaking in somewhat hushed tones as to not wake the section chief, who we're going to meet in just a moment. Deadman heads for the back to check in on the chief, and he finds her wide awake. A bit about a gun for, guns for drugs for context, uh, because the story itself is kind of light on that, and, uh, I mean, we are a quarter century removed, so it's easy to get lost in this. Um, now, during the 1980s, the CIA was allegedly involved in trading weapons for cocaine. This was pretty timely when this story was writ- written, and uh, I could link to Wikipedia for more about it, or you could just search for it. It's not too hard to find. Anywho, Dead Man wakes up face-to-face with the chief, who looks like she's checking the sight on her rifle. The plane eventually lands on a small strip in Belize. The section chief introduces herself to some locals, and we find out that her name is Major Grace Casaba. The Central Americans are a bit disappointed that Ronald Reagan himself didn't show up, but what are you going to do? I, I guess I would be disappointed as well. You know, you, you expect the president and you get Major Casaba. Uh, together, they head into the jungle toward a Mayan temple to do the thing. Casaba and company run into an archaeologist who isn't keen to the idea that they're here. He's afraid that they'll wind up vandalizing the priceless ruins, and, uh, you know, he's probably right to feel that way. This is, after all, kind of a war zone. At this point, Deadman remembers that this whole thing was a trade of weapons for drugs, and he decides to head back to the plane for some hocus-pocus. Deadman takes control of the pilot of the rig and, uh, gets this, he calls into Dade International Airport in Florida to tell them to expect a plane full of cocaine. They think it's a gag, but he assures them that he is not kidding around. Deadman takes out the co-pilot, then diverts course from the clandestine airstrip in the Everglades into Miami-Dade Airport. Uh, we take a look at the, uh, symbols here. They, they disguise cursing with symbols in this, because, uh, one of the guys gets kind of angry and, and curses, and, uh, like a what the is going on here, and one of the symbols is actually a swastika. I, I don't think I've ever used this, I've ever seen a swastika used as, uh, as, you know, ampersand speak in, in comics cursing. It's, uh, weird. With this part of the gig done and buried, Deadman returns to the Mayan temple to check in on Major Kasaba. And get this, as he approaches her, it seems as though she can see him. I kind of get a bad rap around these parts as uh, being a uh, dead man hater. Uh, and uh, in fairness, it's it's kind of true. I, I, I don't so much hate the character as much as I hate the stories that he's in. Uh, I think as a character, he's pretty cool, but... Everything winds up being a little samey, you know? 
takes over a body and that's about it. Uh, it seems like he can kind of magic himself out of any kind of situation. So there's really no writing Dead Man into a corner. Uh, it also it also feels like every time we get a cliffhanger with Dead Man, it's that somebody can see him. I, I feel like we've read several of those uh, this past this past uh, you know Action Comics Daily <laughs> endeavor here, where people can see him. Even the uh, even the Christmas uh, break we took with uh, with Kara, you know, she could see him. It's just it feels like the law of diminishing returns, you know, where if uh, if one person can see him, that's something. But if every other person can see him, it's just okay enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I am happy to be reading an '80s Dead Man thing here, just just to experience it. Um, the only time Dead Man really kind of resonated with me was during Brightest Day, and uh, that's when he wasn't dead. So, you know, what do you want to do? Now, what do we think about this story? Wasn't half bad. Had a pretty pretty neat cliffhanger for the time. Uh, I was a bit trepidatious going into this about some poten- potential uh, political hand-wringing that we might be seeing here. Uh, uh, you know, they mentioned Reagan, and Reagan does make an appearance later on, and it's kind of, uh, eh, you know, it, it's pretty much exactly what you'd expect it to be. Um, the folks at DC didn't seem to be the biggest fans of the Reagan administration, and, uh, I mean, you look at Millennium, Nancy Reagan's a manhunter, and, ugh, all that stuff. Just feels like it's being more written for inter-office high-fives than to actually tell a good story. You know, what are you gonna do? Overall, I didn't disenjoy this. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. And uh, I was hoping going into this that the character would grow on me. And uh, he probably did. You know, we are actually, as we stand now at the blog, we're done with Dead Man. We've done all of his arcs. And uh, we'll never see him again on the blog. Uh, and I think over the weeks and months, I have grown to have a bit of an appreciation for him that I didn't have before. I really like the Dan Jurgens art here. Uh, I feel like Dan's a good fit for the character. Uh, the second arc would have Kelly Jones on art, which is also, a, it's a radically different, but still a really good take for the character and a very good fit. And uh, leaving this chapter, I initially, to, to break out a, a chestnut I've been using a lot on the site, I, I, I said I was cautiously optimistic. And, uh, I mean, that's as good as any, I guess, right? Uh, let's wrap it up with Blackhawk. Now we open in Flashback Land, and it's VJ, Victory Over Japan Day, which was September 2nd, 1945. American streets are filled with celebration in Ballyhoo following the unconditional surrender by Japan. American soldiers returned home, they reunited with their loved ones, and uh, in the words of one guy, they pretended that real life wasn't, quote, boring as hell. Now that boredom would be short-lived, however, as just a year later there was some goings-on in Vietnam that required their attention. Fed up with French rule, the Viet Minh started a revolution. Battles raged during the winter of 1946-1947, and this brings us to the quote-unquote now, because this story takes place in February 1947, where Janice Prohaska, Blackhawk, is taking a bath in a Singaporean... Cathouse, uh, while reading the funnies in Stars and Stripes. He's rather displeased to learn that Milton Caniff has left Terry and the Pirates to start Steve Canyon, and uh, that's actually uh, a whole move that Reggie and I talked about briefly on a uh, episode of Cosmic Treadmill After Dark for uh, the patrons out there. Uh, 
Suddenly, the door is kicked in by a man named Zalecki. He's ticked off and he's wielding a blade while demanding $10,000, which is about $112,604 in today's dollars. Uh, Meanwhile, downstairs, a blonde woman arrives at the cat house and uh, get this, she's looking for Blackhawk too. Back upstairs, Blackhawk pulls the old you-brought-a-knife-to-a-gunfight thing and shoots Zalecki right in the gut. Our mystery blonde hears the gunshot and might might now know exactly where to find her fella. And that's that. I I really enjoyed this one. I like this one a lot. Uh, I really had zero experience with Black Hawk outside of the, uh, I think, one read of the Howard Chaikin prestige format deal uh, that that came out, uh, I think, a little bit before this. I don't know a whole lot about Black Hawk, and even then, I'd read that prestige format thing well over a decade ago. So I, I wasn't sure what to expect going in here. And I think going into the Action Comics Daily thing, Black Hawk was the book or the feature that most intimidated me because I just didn't think I'd have much of a frame of reference for it. And I and I didn't have a frame of reference for it, but turns out I really didn't need one either. And actually, if I were to think about it more, the only Black Hawk I really have any familiarity with would be Lady Black Hawk, who showed up in Birds of Prey. But <laughs> that doesn't really help me here. Now, one thing I wanted to touch on, it's interesting that how much something like time removed, you know, makes actual real-world history more acceptable to me as a storytelling device. If we jump back to the Dead Man feature, they mentioned the Iran-Contra stuff, some Reagan stuff, and I had trouble connecting with that. But not so much with the, you know, the VJ Day and the Surrender. It's it's weird. I, I don't know if maybe it's just time removed or... Or what? It, it, it reminds me of when I read All-Star Squadron and I see them check in with uh, FDR. You know, I can accept that. And I actually feel like it adds to the lore of the story. It brings you, it puts you into the gestalt of when the story's taking place. But I, I hate to see, like, if the Justice League or Avengers were to confer with, uh, with either of the Bushes or Obama or Trump. I, I just don't like that. I think it's, maybe it's too fresh. Maybe it's too soon. I, I don't know. Um, maybe I just trust Mike Grell to tell, to tell a better story than others might. I don't know. Um, now what we get here, we don't get all that much. Uh, Blackhawk himself only shows up in the latter half, though I do appreciate the table setting that we get in the lead up, you know, letting us know exactly where we are and what we're dealing with insofar as, uh, wartime, peacetime. Blackhawk is t- depicted here as a Prototypical action hero, he spouts off cliche lines about You brought a knife to a gunfight, you know This stuff that I, I would usually roll my eyes about But, I don't know, here it kind of works I, I kind of like it uh, Overall, at first blush Like I mentioned, this bo- this arc, feature, whatever Really, I was really trepidatious going in I didn't think I was going to like it I thought it was going to be the, you know, put your head down and, and power through because I thought it was just going to be so dull, but I was rather captivated. Um, And again, to put the cart in front of the horse here, Blackhawk has turned into a top three Action Comics Weekly feature for me overall. I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, Even Martin Pascoe comes in for the second and third arcs, uh, and they're, they're just as solid as this Grill one. It's a lot of fun. And I was uh, very excited to continue. And, I, and even as we sit here now talking about it, I'm excited to 
uh, to go into the third arc that we're about to go into on the uh, on the blog. It's just a real fun feature. Uh, if you were to read one story out of this book, uh, you know there, there there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff. You know, um, as we stand now, 28 issues in on the blog, it's kind of a lull period in Action Comics Weekly. A lot of uh, treading water. You can tell that the priority has kind of dipped a bit at DC Editorial. Where starting out here, we kind of we kind of hit the ground running. We have a very very strong Green Lantern uh, chapter. This Black Hawk chapter is great. I think it's a lot of uh, very interesting table setting and uh, very diverse line of features. And I'm, I was sitting here thinking if I had to if I had to recommend one, I, I don't know that I could. I could tell you not to bother with the Superman feature. I could tell you that much, but uh, everything else I think is uh, is solid to good and uh, well worth checking out. At least for this first one, just to get uh, you know a taste for it. Of course, you can just uh, check it out at the blog. A lot of these stories have been reviewed uh, or featured three times on the blog at this point. Uh, their individual chapter, uh, the compilation, and also. The uh, compilation of the Action Comics Weekly Preview Edition. It was a special black and white edition that was sent out to retailers. We've we've touched on it before during very very early installments of the Hot Take, where uh, folks were getting these advanced copies of the black and white photostats. I actually came into possession of one myself, and uh, it's one of my you know treasured uh, uh, collection pieces uh, right now. I also have the in-store display, the mobile display. Of uh, for Action Comics Weekly that was hang- that would hang in comic book stores back in 1988. My good pal Dave hooked me up with that. It's got uh, the Action Comics Weekly logo and it's got little dangling, uh, you know, discs, uh, each featuring one of the uh, features. You got a Wild Dog, you know, Dead Man. Uh, I like our Dead Man logo better than the one they use there. The one that we use at the site is a lot uh, cleaner, I think. But. Uh, these have become very, very treasured pieces of my, uh, of just my museum of uh, comics ephemera, and uh, I've really come to appreciate this Action Comics Weekly experiment, and uh, I'm just so pleased that I actually have stuck through it as long as I have, or stuck with it as long as I have, and I hope that uh, maybe this might inspire some folks who have been. You know, dismissing the blog as just being <laughs> about one title now. Maybe give it a look. Maybe see if, uh, I mean, there is something for everybody in Action Comics Weekly. At least that was the plan. So uh, if you're interested, definitely uh, give it a look. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna link to uh, a few th- a few key uh, chapters in the show notes if you're interested in checking out. Um, since we've already done the uh, synopsis and analysis, I guess we could uh, hop to the horns and then go right into the hot take. Hot take? What, what? What's a hot take? Oh, that, that's, a, that's a flashback right there, huh? Well, we don't have a hot take here. The, uh, the hot take is a Chris on Infinite Earths thing that, uh, well, I haven't done an episode of that in quite some time. I, I've got a couple that are partially scripted. I don't know that <laughs> it'll come back anytime soon, but uh, yeah, that was a thing that I did on that show. But instead of a hot take, we actually have the... Uh, the not quite the letters page here from Action Comics Weekly number 601, and it's basically uh, Mike Gold introducing the concept and welcoming us once again. Now, he kicks off this uh, introduction uh, by talking a bit about the history of the anthology 
and what an important part of comics history this format was. And he lists off some Golden Age anthologies as being where many of the biggest characters in comics actually got their start. He lists off, you know, characters like Superman in Action Comics, Batman in Detective Comics, Flash and Hawkman in Flash Comics, the real Captain Marvel in Wiz Comics, Black Hawk in Military Comics, Wonder Woman in Sensation Comics, Green Lantern in All-American Comics, also the Atom in All-American, Green Arrow in More Fun, and also Aquaman in More Fun. Gold says that he started reading comics in the late 1950s, as anthologies were kind of on their last gasp. Like Superman now owned action comics, for lack of a better term there, uh, with backups featuring characters like Tommy Tomorrow. Batman, you know, he had residency in detective comics with backups featuring folks like Martian Manhunter. Adventure comics, kind of anthology-ish here. It was occupied by Superboy, Aquaman, and Green Arrow. So, I mean, that was basically the extent of the anthology format at the time, at least at DC National. Now, Mike then hops into the 1960s and also hops across the street to Marvel, where many of their titles were anthologies, or at least shared space titles, and, um... That's a topic that we will tackle a little bit later on in this series here, because that's yeah, it's probably something many people listening already know, but uh, it'll be fun to discuss, and for completionist's sake, it's something that might, might need to be a part of this program here, insofar as running the gamut on anthologies and the history, and how important they were, and maybe, well, probably not one day again be, but uh, what they were, what they were. And folks who listen to the Essential X-Laps know that, uh, you know, we're shoulder-deep in the Silver Age, and uh, we talk about the anthologies quite a bit. They come up in the bullpen bulletins, they come up in the mighty Marvel checklist. And some of those titles were Journey into Mystery, Strange Tales, Tales to Astonish, and Tales of Suspense. Now, the main problem that Gold sees, or I guess saw, with this format was that there weren't, there simply weren't enough pages being dedicated to each strip. Like, an 8-12 to page story every month just wasn't enough to satisfy the readership. And so, I mean, this is a perfect opportunity to try a weekly thing, a new attempt at an anthology. You're not waiting four weeks for the next eight pages, you're just waiting one week. Now, Gold claims that Action Comics invented the superhero anthology back in 1938, and now, a half-century later in 1988, Action Comics Weekly will reinvent it. As we learned before, Action Comics Weekly is introduced as having two regular features and a rotating cast of four others. The regulars, of course, is the eight-page Green Lantern strip and the two-page Sunday Funny-style Superman strip, which... Oof. Um, <laughs> we'll get into it as we go along here. Uh, the Superman strip was actually kind of a bone of contention for me, and uh, actually several of the readers over at Chris's on Infinite Earths who received it far better than I did, but... um. I think that's one of those Chris problems. I think uh, my not appreciating it... And if you listen to X-Lapsed, uh, I often talk about the X-Lapsed problem where, you know, rather than just reading a book and putting it down, I spend several hours with it. Well, it was the same thing for this two-page Superman strip, although it wasn't hours, of course, but uh, I was spending far more time than was probably healthy with it. <laughs> and uh, when you don't get much out of it, it's it's less of a passive, enjoyable reading experience and more of an exercise in trying to figure out something to say about something where nothing happens. So I think maybe that colored my perception. We'll see if that continues through this audio attempt at the, uh, at the project here. Now Gold continues uh, with the remaining four titles here, or the f remaining four features. There'll be eight-ish pages a week. So sometimes there'll be seven, sometimes there'll be nine. I mean, they're eight-ish pages. And uh, they're going to stick around to tell their story before being put on hiatus and replaced with the next strip or strips. And Gold lays it out for us here. 
He says, when Blackhawk ends, it'll be replaced with Black Canary. And talk about Wolf. That's going to be a fun one to talk about. Um, now, when Wild Dog ends, it'll be replaced with Nightwing. When Dead Man ends, maybe they'll bring back Blackhawk. And he also mentions that there are going to be some surprises in store for the readers here, one of which will be a series of one or two shots featuring the Phantom Stranger, which, if you ask me, isn't the selling point that Mr. Gold seems to think it is. Um, and the other, and this one really shows how much faith they had in the ACW project here, the other surprise is a uh, Showcase Presents style feature. And this is to try out characters in a starring role, maybe to introduce just new, new concepts, new potential IPs, in a bite-sized version of the old, you know, showcase presents from back in the Silver Age. And uh, Gold says that uh, they probably won't do more than one or two of these showcases a year, which, I mean, the entire ACW Endeavor didn't make it a whole year, so uh, we're not going to get very many of those. I think we get, uh, off the top of my head, I think we get like three, maybe four. We get a uh, we get a Captain Marvel, we get a Catwoman, we get a Hero Hotline. Um, there are some one shots peppered in there. There's a Starman one shot. There's a uh, Human Target one shot. And as Gold mentioned, there's going to be uh, you know the Phantom Stranger will be be bopping and scatting around the uh, around the fringes here. Gold then breaks down some of the behind the scenes for us. He says that uh, ACW will feature 2,500 pages of comics per year. And so, each feature will not only have its own creative team, but its own editorial team as well. I'm not sure why the readers of the day would need to know this bit of info, but hey, it's info, we'll take it. He then talks about the two lead features here. We got Superman, of course. And while there was a brief period of time back in the day where Supergirl had the Action Comics title to herself, very, very brief, uh, post-Crisis DC didn't want to put a single issue of Action Comics out without the Man of Steel in it. So uh, tell that to, to Dan DiDio circa 2009 or so. Gold mentions how many of the 1950s Superman stories started off as newspaper strips, and so the Superman feature in ACW will attempt to evoke that same vibe. Whether it does or not, I couldn't tell you. What I can tell you is it's uh, well, not my cup of tea. Not my cup of tea. Uh, it's worth noting here that this strip is to be drawn by veteran Superman artist Kurt Swan, who really didn't have much of a place in the post-crisis DC bullpen, so... I mean, that might be the highlight of, uh, of the Superman strip is seeing Kurt Swan in the, in the post-crisis world here. Uh, what about Hal, our other feature here? Now, the Green Lantern feature is referred to here as the second ongoing deal in ACW, despite the fact that, out of the two, it's the only one with an actual story, and it's usually placed in the lead-off position of the book. Now, Gold says that there have been many GLs, but Hal's the real one. Now, one thing I left out talking about the Amazing Heroes uh, magazine feature on ACW was they had named Peter David and Todd Smith as the initial creative team on the uh, Green Lantern feature, and that's not the case. As it's stated here, and as we already talked about with the issue, uh, this first arc comes to us from Jim Owsley and Gil Kane. Uh, Peter David and Todd Smith will come on not too long into the run here. They're going to have that uh, weird story with... Hal having a uh, sort of kind of lobotomy uh, in his past and also uh, guest starring on Oprah Winfrey. So that'll be a fun one to talk about when we get there. But uh, as for the one we get here, it's, uh, again, Owsley and Kane with edits from a former GL regular himself, Denny O'Neill. Gold then goes into introducing the remaining four stories for this opening salvo here, Wild Dog, Dead Man, Secret Six, and Blackhawk, and then goes into the creator and character lineup for uh, the several hundredth time. But uh, we're not going to go into that today. We will focus back on some of these features as we move forward through this series because I, I want to talk about 
where these characters were before, why they might have been a good fit for this anthology format. So we will uh, we will refer back to this uh, missive from uh, from Mike Gold sporadically throughout these opening several episodes. But uh, that's really about it for today, I guess. Now, to give you a little bit of a look into the future here, Action Comics Weekly 602 does not have a letters page. It has instead a DC Focus, which has taken a look at the power of the atom, and we will discuss that next episode in addition to you know referring back to the uh, gold missive here. Action Comics Weekly number 603 has Wild Dog letters, because Wild Dog was a miniseries, and by the time they started getting letters, it was already over. So we're going to publish some of those. We'll discuss some of those. Uh, we will refer back to Wild Dog's original arc there to see how it uh, how it flowed into the Action Comics Weekly featurette. Now, Action Comics Weekly 604 has another DC focus, this time on Batman the Cult. And then finally, in Action Comics Weekly number 605, we're going to start getting some letters from the preview copy letter hacks about their thoughts, their initial thoughts, on the Action Comics Weekly endeavor. And that was actually where I was going to start this program with issue 605, analyzing and uh, and going through those letters with the initial uh, initial thoughts on the on the new look action comics. But the completionist in me won't won't allow that. So we're uh, we're starting at the start, and uh, we will get there when we get there. I ain't going nowhere, so I'll be around for it. <laughs> and I hope you will be as well. I hope you enjoyed this. I had a good time revisiting this. Uh, this weird little passion project. I didn't know that I'd ever be coming back to Action Comics Weekly. And to do it in this new format, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And hopefully, hopefully it reaches some, uh, some new ears, some new eyes, and uh, enlightens some folks to what a uh, strange and wonderful little project and endeavor this was for DC Comics to embark on back in 1988. But that's going to do it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, I would love for you to do so. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to start ranking these Action Comics Weekly uh, features, I would love that. <laughs> I'm going to try to figure out a way to do a poll again, maybe. Maybe, I'll, maybe, I'll, uh, maybe I'm ready to be hurt again. I'll try to do a poll again. Well, we'll find out <laughs> as we move forward here. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Action Comics Weekly project, the Action Comics Daily project. The preview edition, anything you want to talk about, find me. I'm easy to find. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Hey, you could even call into the voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts, show notes, and the entire ACD project, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Action Comics Daily is a little button on the top of the page. Take you right to the, uh, I guess, the... uh, the headquarters of Action Comics Daily. You can join us on Facebook. There is a Chris's on Infinite Earths page. There's also the X-Lapsed page at uh, 90s X-Men. That's usually where I'm hanging out, and uh, we're willing to talk about anything you want over there. And for the complete audio archive, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise on the internet. Finally, there is the Patreon, patreon.com slash xlapsed, where... You will be able to find this and uh, many other shows and a whole lot of content that I hope folks are finding enjoyable. But with all that said, I think it's high time to wrap this little episode up. I'd like to thank you all so much for your support and for, for keeping me company today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.